Like I said, we are in a new series called Questions, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, or yeah, Mark chapter 12, excuse me, verse 13 is where we're going to be. And I want to let you know there's few subjects um, that are more of a landmine than the one that we're going to talk about today. And what I mean is like if you go there, you're going there. And uh, it's not necessarily the place you would voluntarily go. You see, in my household, when I used to visit my grandparents up in Washington, we had a rule. There's two things you cannot talk about, religion and politics. So we've decided to do both this morning. <laughs> so in Mark chapter 12, what we're going to see is this. Like, if we decided that those two things are off limits, then we got to cut this section of the Bible out. And I'm not really all that comfortable of editing the Bible. And so we're going to preach it. We're going to look at it. We're going to actually venture into uh, the deep waters in some ways. And the question that we're beginning with today is this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, this question itself is a question that was asked of Jesus for the express purpose of trying to trap him in his talk. The questioners came to him and wanted him to stumble in his answer and in his stumbling and giving an answer to their question, they would have reason or grounds to put Jesus to death. And so in this particular culture, it was kind of one of those moments where they could listen to Jesus' answer. And if he had any missteps in his answer, they could say, gotcha. Now you're going to die. Ooh, that's intense. And the reality is we live in a gotcha culture today. Keith Burris, who's an editor and vice president of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, he wrote this about the gotcha culture that we live in. He says, part of what is now going on in our culture is the desire to catch pretty much every public person in some private sin and therefore bring them down. The gotcha impulse extends not only to errant deeds, but also missteps in speech. In the moment in which we are now living, distinctions and the ability to make them are not popular. But without the ability to make distinctions, thought itself is dead. Thought becomes reflexive rather than reflective. And so my hope today is that by studying this question, we'll see how Jesus navigates the gotcha culture, how we can be people who are more reflective rather than reflexive, and how we could pursue with wisdom and thoughtfulness about the engagement of faith and politics. So, Lord, would you help us? Because the one thing that the enemy wants done this morning is for people to leave this gathering with the sure conclusion that since people around don't agree with one another, then Jesus is false. So, God, would you help us as your people to be unified in you? That the gospel would be the thing that we rally around. That our unity in Christ supersedes all other possible unities and alignments and allegiances. And so God, for that, we ask supernaturally that you would intervene. Protect us from the evil one. God, grant us the kinds of thoughts and the kind of emotions and the kind of desires that are pleasing to you as we enter into this subject. So be with us and teach us now, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. In order for us to really grasp this text, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to go back and kind of set the context. And so that's what we're going to start with. Read it, context. We start in Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I want to start by setting the context because there's a lot going on here. 
And in order to do that, what I'm going to do is ask and answer a series of questions that will help us understand what in the world's going on. Whenever you read the Bible, you want to make sure that you're reading it properly in its context. You don't want to just be reading things in isolation from the whole narrative of Scripture, from the entirety of the book in which the text is coming from, or in the immediate kind of situation in which this text is found. And so I'm going to take some time to just ask and answer a few questions. And the first question I'm going to ask is this, who sent the Pharisees and the Herodians and why were they sent? You see in verse 13 it says, and they sent to Jesus these two groups of people. And so who is the they and why were they sent? And the answer is it was three groups of people that sent the Herodians and the Pharisees. We read this in chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus and the disciples come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And so when you read from that section all the way down, you'll see that that's the, the three groups that are together who are sending the Herodians and the Pharisees. Now this three group, these three groups are comprised, when they are coming together, they, they comprise what is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a council of rulers. They're the ones who kind of govern uh, the area of Jerusalem, Judea, that kind of thing. And the council of rulers called the Sanhedrin were the men that Jesus was brought to in Mark chapter 14 on the night when he was betrayed. And remember the chief priests and those were sitting there and they were interviewing Jesus. And uh, you remember that scene and I encourage you to read that. And why is it that they were sent? And the answer is found in chapter 11 verse 18 where we read that the chief priests and the scribes heard it, what, what happened, what Jesus was doing, what he was teaching, and it says that they were seeking a way to destroy him. And so the answer is they were sent by the chief priests, by the scribes, by the elders in order to trap Jesus that they might kill him. Now why in the world did they want to kill him? The rest of verse 18 goes on to say, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So what was it that caused these people to want to kill Jesus? And the answer is they were fearful of Jesus. And they feared Jesus because the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They feared that their influence was beginning to wane. And you can see it in chapter 11, verse 27. When Jesus does come to Jerusalem, as we have already read, those three groups of people came to him and they asked him this question in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? That's a childish way of saying, who died and made you boss? <laughs> Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is considered their rival. He is somebody that is demonstrating that he has authority and power and influence and it is a threat to these people's power, authority, and influence. And so they're asking the question, who do you think you are? What exactly are these people afraid of? And the answer is they're afraid of losing their high position in society. They're afraid that the people will no longer have a high opinion of them. Put bluntly and put into modern day terms, they wanted to kill Jesus because he was trending. People were sharing his stuff. People were talking about it. His popularity, his influence was growing. And in so doing, Jesus was threatening their comfort, their security, their power, their influence, their social clout. And they were having none of that. We don't want him around because he's threatening our very way of life. You see, the Bible calls this kind of thing the fear of man. And what it is is the idea that you are more fearful of the opinions of the people around you than you are of the opinion of God. And how this manifests itself in our lives, and you may be very familiar with this, is, is something like this. You are afraid to speak out. You are afraid to express your opinion. 
you are afraid to make a decision. And the rationale for why you have those kinds of fears and why you're afraid to do so is you, in the back of your mind, are thinking, if I were to say that, do this, or express my opinion, what would so-and-so think of me? What would so-and-so say about me? What would end up happening to me? What would be the ramifications for me? Would I no longer be invited? Would I no longer be included? Would I be excluded? Would they say bad things about me? Would they no longer respect me? And when you have that kind of situation, the reality is this, is you are living under the heavy-handedness of the fear of man. Where your greatest fear is not displeasing God, but displeasing those around you. But there is hope if that's you. If that describes you, let me tell you, there is hope. Because that way of living is so hard. Every day you are scrutinizing your own way of life because you are afraid of what people might say or think of you. People think that you graduate from middle school and high school and you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Until you're in your 80s and you're still wondering, I wonder what the people in the hallway think of me. (laughs) It never ends. So what is the good news? It's that you can be free of that. That's the good news. You can be free of that if you want. Because the same gospel that delivers you and rescues you from the wrath of God also delivers you and rescues you from the fear of man. And how does it do that? Well, we have to remember Jesus came, God born in human flesh, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus came and lived a sinless life. Everything that he did in his life was done exactly in submission to the law of God. And not only was Jesus completely sinless, but he willingly, voluntarily, and joyfully took upon himself the just consequences and penalty for sins by being crucified on a Roman cross. And then he was dead and buried. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, it proved, justified, validated everything that he taught and did as being approved, validated by God himself. And so, as Jesus says that the gospel must be preached, the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins and new life should be received, anyone who repents and believes Jesus is given new life. And when you're given new life, the Bible says you are united with Christ, that there's a great exchange that takes place where his perfect life and your imperfect life are now exchanged. And the consequences for sin and the punishment for sin that he endured were placed upon him so that you go free. And not only that, but when you are united with Christ, the Bible tells us that you are eternally secure. Which means that when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, by his blood he purchased and ransomed and redeemed a people. So that the people he purchased by his blood are his irrevocably. There's no return policy. So when you are in Christ, you are utterly secure in him. No opinion of man, no accusation from the evil one can ever, ever pluck you from his hand. You're secure. And by the gospel... You now have an advocate that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for you. He is not your accuser. He is your advocate. Your accuser is Satan. And Jesus has already triumphed over him. In Christ you are adopted. You are not left as an orphan. You are not left on your own. You are not left to your own volition and will and desires. You are adopted. You are brought into a family if you are in Christ. And that family is called to love, to serve. And if you are in Christ, you've been rescued. You've been rescued from sin. You've been rescued from the power of sin. And you've been brought into a family where you are experiencing restoration And brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian and you are in Christ, then you are more loved than you ever thought 
possible. And so, because you are in Christ, what God says of you is what he says of Christ. And what he says of Christ is what he says of you. And therefore, what he says of you is of eternal significance and far greater than what any person can say of you. God's opinion of you matters more than any man's opinion. And you can be free to live your life knowing that God loves you, even if man doesn't. That's good. Verse 13. So these people sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Why were these two people specifically identified? The reason is because they're trying to trap Jesus in a political dilemma. Let me give some background. The Pharisees were a particular group of Jews who were traditional in their views of the world. What I mean is that they were religious conservatives who wanted to maintain the traditions of their forefathers. And when it comes to their position on Roman occupation in Israel, they were completely hostile, toward, hostile towards the Romans and they wanted the Romans out of the land. You see, at this time in, in history, the Jews were being oppressed by the Roman occupation. And so there was a lot of things that the Jews could not do and practice. They could not express their faith because of the oppression of the Romans and their presence around. And so the Pharisees were of the opinion that we got to boot these fools out of the land. Whereas the Herodians were of a different perspective. They were associates and family members of King Herod. They wanted Herod to be given sovereign rule over Judea and thought that the, that would happen most likely if they were to partner with the Roman government and to kind of work together. So that way King Herod and his family would have authority. They were much more progressive in their views and were favorable towards the Romans. Here's what's weird. If you do a little bit of research on these two people groups of the Pharisees and the Herodians, you will find that there is precisely nothing that they agree on. <laughs> they hate each other. They don't agree on anything. And yet, do you notice the one thing that they do agree on? Their hatred of Jesus. Their hatred of Jesus. And so these unlikely bedfellows come together and they go, you hate Jesus? Hey, we do too. Let's hate him together. Let's try to get rid of them. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, hoping that Jesus will either offend the traditional group called the Pharisees or he will offend the progressive group called the Herodians with what he says. They will hope that in offending the Pharisees, the Pharisees will be willing to stone him to death. If he offends the Herodians, they will rat him out to Caesar and that the Romans will put him to death. Either way, they pose the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, you need to side with us or with them. And they say, the Herodians, you need to side with us or with them. And here's the reality. If Jesus chooses the Pharisees over the Herodians, he can be crucified. If he chooses the Herodians over the Pharisees, he can be stoned to death. Which way would you like to die? That is your option. Do you see what's happening now? They're trying to trap Jesus. So this sets the stage for what happens. They come to him, verse 14. They say, teacher, we know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I just want to stop and just make sure that we understand what just happened. They come to Jesus, obviously trying to trap him. Jesus says in verse 15 uh, that he knows their hypocrisy. And so what they say of Jesus, there's three truths that they say of Jesus, but it's hypocrisy because they don't actually believe the truths. It's flattery. And you notice the three things they say of Jesus. Number one, he doesn't care about people's opinions, which means Jesus doesn't act, speak, or think in accordance with popular opinion. Jesus is his own man. The second thing they say is that he is not swayed by appearances. The literal reading is that he does not look at people's faces. And what that really means, it's kind of an idiom, which means he doesn't show favoritism. And the third thing they say is that Jesus teaches God's word truly. 
meaning he doesn't tamper with God's word or contort it to fit his own preferences. Here's what's interesting. These people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, come to Jesus and say these three truths about Jesus. They don't even believe it. But what's interesting is those three truths that they say of Jesus are not true of the people who sent the Herodians and Pharisees. Do you notice that? You see, the people who sent the Herodians and the Pharisees, they are people who value other people's opinions. They are people who practice favoritism. They do tamper with God's word. And so right from the beginning, what you have is this. Jesus is completely different than everybody else. He's other. He's just different. And the question they pose to Jesus is actually really smart. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You see, their thought is this, that we will give Jesus a question that requires him to choose between two alternatives, this or that. Do you support the Pharisee position or do you support the Herodian position? And Jesus is going to be guilty whether he says yes or whether he says no or whether he says this or whether he says that. He's guilty no matter what. So if he sides with Israel, he'll be guilty of insubordination of Caesar and could be sentenced to death. If he sides with Caesar, he'll be guilty of betraying his own people and could be stoned to death. So what Jesus is really facing is a cultural hot-button issue. Since they're under Roman occupation, the question is, what do you think about Rome and what do you think we should do? And so in this volatile cultural setting, they want to know what Jesus thinks or what Jesus has to say about the issue. Not because they're actually sincere, but because they're looking for a way to kill him. I felt like that a few times. <laughs> Phil, what do you think about this? No, not going there. There's wisdom in that. But look what Jesus does. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why put me to the test? Just stop for a second. Think about that. Why are you doing this to me? Rhetorical question. He's not really waiting for an answer, but the answer should be because we hate you. We want to kill you. But Jesus just plants that seed in their mind. Then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. I love this situation because you can just imagine. Bring me a denarius and there's people sitting around with this, I mean, this, this, is, this is just a situation ready to explode. It's just ready to explode. And Jesus says, bring me a denarius. And they're all like, I can't wait to see. Wait, what? What did he say? Did he, did he, he wants money? <laughs> you can imagine somebody just standing there like, this is a weird situation. Mike, did you, do you have a denarius? No, man, I left it on my nightstand. I didn't, I, I didn't know we needed money today. And so they're asking around, who's got a denarius? You got what? No, I don't have nothing. And you can experience perhaps that people are thinking to themselves, where in the world is he going with this? What, what, what is he trying to do right now? And so they're spending some time trying to find the denarius until finally it gets passed down the line. Jesus holds out his hand and somebody places the denarius right in his hand. You can imagine from the time he asked for it until the time he received it, suspense was building. What is he going to do? What is he thinking? So they brought it to him. Verse 16, and he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. I, I love the question because it's so obvious. It's just everybody knew who was on the denarius. And yet it's Jesus who doesn't want to give the answer. He doesn't want the answer to fall from his lips. He wants the answer to fall from their lips. You tell me what's going on. You see, what they're trying to do is trap Jesus in a false dilemma. It's either this or that. But Jesus knew that this is a false dilemma and it proved a false alternative. You see, in logic, I don't know um, if they still do it or if they did it. Um, I don't know. I don't want to be offensive. Anyways, in college, they teach logic. And uh, for many people, that is a prerequisite. Or they'll teach critical thinking. 
And when you take critical thinking or logic classes, you learn about a bunch of fallacies, formal and informal fallacies. And one of the informal fallacies that is happening here is the informal fallacy that is called false dilemma or false alternative. And basically what it is is that it, it's, it's a thing which suggests that there's only two options where in fact there might be a third option, at least one other option. There could be multiple, but at least one other. So the dilemma for Jesus was that he could answer in the traditional way or he could answer in the progressive way. But the reality is either way, you're done for. So Jesus, knowing their false dilemma, knowing that they have just committed an informal fallacy, he actually provides a third option. Jesus chooses distinction and nuance. So Jesus' use of logic here reveals the hypocrisy of his questioners and the unanticipated answer that he provides leaves the people marveling. Look at this in verse 17. Is it this or that? Jesus says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The third way. The third way. See, Jesus' answer is profound and truly ought to cause us to marvel. Because Jesus doesn't get involved in these cultural hot-button issues where there's a bunch of false alternatives where you either are for us or you're for us. And of course, if you're for us, we hate you. And if you're for us, we hate you. And as we often see in our culture, if you're not for us, you're against us. And of course, if you don't have the same mindset I have or the same opinion I have or the same thoughts I have, then obviously you're stupid. That's the only alternative. Smart like me or stupid, you know. And especially when it comes to politics and things like this, this is what oftentimes happens. When Christians get together and they talk and there's obviously a difference of opinion, it's, well, I'm a Christian and obviously you're not. That's the alternative. Believe what I believe or you're not a Christian. And, of course, both sides say that. So Jesus goes a different route. Jesus' answer is, both straightforward and very ambiguous. <laughs> straightforward in the sense that it's black and white, no discussion, this is the way it is. And ambiguous in the sense that Jesus is kind of like, well, prudence, wisdom, discernment is needed here. So let's start with a straightforward answer that Jesus gives. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So the straightforward answer should we pay taxes, is allegiance to God does not mean that there are no civic duties. Likewise, civic duty does not negate our allegiance to God. Black and white, it's clear as day, that's what Jesus is teaching. There are civic duties, and those civic duties are not things that negate our faith. And because we have faith, it doesn't mean that we don't have any civic duties. So, how do we navigate these waters? What Jesus is talking about is this reality that you can participate in civic things in whichever place you live. Your Christianity does not negate your civic responsibilities and privileges. However, if you think that your civic duty means you must check your Christian faith at the door, that's also false. In our culture today, it's this idea that you cannot bring your faith into the public square. And we as Christians cannot do that because Christ is Lord over all. And every area of our lives, our recreation, our vacations, our work lives, our family lives, what we do with our money, what we do with our time in any way, shape, or form, what we do in our civic responsibilities, everything, Jesus says that we are to surrender it to him. So Christianity has a word to say, and the gospel has truth to bring to bear on everything, including our civic responsibilities and our involvement in politics. So to keep our faith private out of the public arena is basically to say, you can't have faith. I will not recant my faith. And we have to bring... And we have to bring our faith and the truth of the gospel to bring to bear on things of public issues. So it's both. There is a civic responsibility. 
which does not negate our faith, and our faith does not negate our civic duties. That's, that's clear. It's cut and dry. No argument. If you disagree with that, you believe something outside of Scripture. However, Jesus' answer is also ambiguous and kind of frustrating. Ambiguous means there's a multitude of answers and possibilities. Do you notice that Jesus never says exactly how to go about doing, involve, involving yourself in civic duties and stuff? He says that you should do it, but not how you should do it. <sighs> okay. So Richard Newhouse, who is a prominent Christian thinker in the 20th century about faith and politics and how these two things work together, he says that he writes this. Christian political engagement is an endlessly difficult subject. Our Lord said to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, but he did not accommodate us by spelling out the details. For over 2,000 years, Christians have again and again taught that, uh, thought that they got the mix just right, only to have it blow up in their faces. We're always having to go back to the drawing board, which is to say to first importance things. Even when, especially when, we are most intensely engaged in battle, first importance things must be kept first in our minds. It profits us nothing if we win all the political battles while losing our own souls. Brothers and sisters, the first things, we've talked about this for weeks on end now, the first thing is the gospel. The gospel has to be foremost. It's of first importance. And so in every dialogue, in every engagement of any kind, the gospel is to be preeminent in everything. And so if you imagine Jesus' answer, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's, we have to understand that there's an ambiguous dimension to that answer that we need to proceed with caution. You see, if the Pharisees were sitting there listening to Jesus, say, render to Caesar's seat, what is Caesar's, God to what is God. They will take that principle, but then they will hear something different. And they'll hear something like this. Oh, he said, render to God what is God's. God is over all. God is the authority over all, including Rome and Caesar. So therefore, Jesus is with us. We claim Jesus. And then on the other side, the Herodians are going... What an answer. That was amazing. And you know what Jesus said? Render to Caesar what is Caesar. He's with us on this one for sure. So you have both parties absolutely sure that Jesus is for them and against the other. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so what we need to do is we need to exercise great caution as we talk about faith and politics. For if we are not careful then we can easily hear whatever we want to hear. And therefore, we can be assured that our preferences, our policies, and our strategies are not coming from our own opinions, but they're coming from the mouth of Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is very dangerous. So we should listen with great caution and clarity. And we should not divide over ambiguous things like policy and strategy. Here's the reality. I have felt this at times. I remember preaching one time and on a Monday I got an email going, our family's leaving Golden Hills. We're never setting foot there again because we can't listen to this conservative drivel anymore. And then on Wednesday, I got another email saying, our family's leaving Golden Hills. We will never set foot in that church. You're preaching progressive nonsense, you, you liberal. And I'm thinking to myself, they're talking about the same sermon. What do you do? Confirmation bias at its best. If we ever feel more at home with those who share our political bent than we do with those who share our faith, we have not kept first things first. J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he says it like this. We should be able to disagree charitably on policy matters while not questioning the spirituality of those who see things differently. Just because someone doesn't agree with our particular strategy for promoting the general welfare does not mean that they don't care about poverty relief. 
Christians should feel a greater unity in Christ than they do disunity in political strategies. Churches should be places where people who stridently disagree on political policy questions come together in their unity in Christ. The reality, brothers and sisters, is this. You and I, if we are Christians, we have repented and believed the gospel. We have more in common than anyone who votes like us. First and foremost, the gospel unites us. First and foremost, we are made. Remember, the gospel makes us into a family. The gospel, by repenting and believing it, is what unites us to Christ. How in the world can those of us who have been united with Christ divide Christ through our political divisions? And so we must use wisdom, prudence, discernment. We must be humble and cautious as we navigate these waters. Because Jesus was intentionally vague about some stuff. While also being incredibly crystal clear about other things. Do you see the difference? So how we approach this stuff is this. We need to be confident about those things which are clearly taught in Scripture. Now I know there's debate about what is clearly taught in Scripture. But the debate is a lot less debatable if you just read the Bible. <laughs> so, for instance, here is something which cannot be debated. And if you do want to debate it, you're just wrong. The Bible says, love your neighbor. Old and New Testament, everywhere you look, love your neighbor. Now, some people want to find a loophole in that command by asking what question? Well, who's my neighbor? Which is a question we'll ask in a couple weeks. So who's my neighbor? Can you qualify for me exactly who I'm supposed to love? It can't possibly be my neighbor Rick down the street, right? I mean, that guy's whacked out. I can't, I can't love that guy. You're telling me I got to love somebody who's got the whole rainbow sticker on the back of their car? I can't love them. They're whacked out. You mean I got to love somebody who doesn't think or talk like me? I don't think so. And so the crystal clear principle is you love your neighbor. And the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that Jesus rebukes those who think that they have the license to pick and choose who they will or will not love. And how are we supposed to love our neighbor? Well, that begins to be a little more ambiguous, but at least this way through meeting their emotional, physical needs. Not just with our words and with our talk, but with our actions and in truth. 1 John 3, 18. So if we're going to say we love our neighbors, but yet we don't lift a finger to help them, serve them, or meet any of their needs, you don't love your neighbor. Crystal clear Bible teaching. Now how exactly you meet their physical needs, whether you should get on the ladder and clean their gutters, or rather, rather, you go and, uh, I don't know, like restore their 57 Chevy in order to meet a need. The Bible speaks of nothing about those things. Those are ambiguous. So pray, ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct, trusting that he will give you wisdom, and then just act. <laughs> There's also another clear teaching that we need to give justice to the poor. And to fight against injustice when it comes to the oppression of the vulnerable. That is the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, and the poor. There is no question about that. One time I compiled a list of all the commands and all of the inferences to treating the poor with equity and justice. And there's over 200 in the Bible. It's not a question of whether or not Christians should fight for the justice of the vulnerable. That is not a question in discussion. Jesus has already laid that one out. But there is a question about how, we exact, how exactly we go about doing that. You see, when we confront something that is plaguing our nation in the big cities like homelessness, some people will say do this, some people say do this, some people say do this, some people say do this. Underlying all of that is the notion of justice. We can't sit and do nothing. 
These people choose this, these people choose this. But just because they chose this and they chose this doesn't mean they're not a Christian and they are because they chose that and they didn't. You tracking with me? So that is ambiguous. And when it comes to the ambiguous things that we encounter regularly, we should be humble that we may actually be wrong. Our strategy, our actual policy of curbing homelessness or fighting for the justice of the vulnerable, perhaps our policy is wrong, though our motive is, is completely true and right. Do you see the difference? Fight for the justice of the vulnerable. We should fight to end abortion. The most vulnerable human beings. But how we go about doing that's going to be different. Let's go and pick it. Let's go and change the laws. But just because you choose the laws and you don't pick it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. And just because you pick it and don't change the laws doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You, you tracking with me? But we all agree on this. One of the gravest evils humanity has ever invented is abortion. So, so there is, in fact, a realm in which our faith must inform our civic engagement. And there is clarity on those issues while there's also ambiguity. Clear principles and yet ambiguous policies. Let us never make the policies the principles. Never. Now, some people will push back and say, ah, I don't like all this talking about paying taxes and submitting to the government. We've got to stick it to the man. Romans 13, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. We may say, yeah, but what if they're corrupt? John 19, verse 10. Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. Pontius says to Jesus in verse 10, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You better recognize that your authority is delegated, not derived. Delegated. But you notice Jesus, he still submits himself to the authority. Though he does not bend the knee in allegiance and worship of Pilate nor Caesar. Principle, policy. Clarity, ambiguity. 1 Peter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Brothers and sisters, our faith has civic implications. But our civic implications and responsibilities and duties must never supersede our allegiance and commitment to Christ Almighty. So, even though we have civic duties and our faith informs us that we should actively engage in the civic responsibilities and duties we do have, the civic duties we have should never supersede our faith in importance. In fact, the gospel itself compels our civic involvement. The gospel itself informs our civil involvement in everything. It doesn't excuse it. The gospel is of first importance. So let first things be first. Now, how does this impact us? Jesus' answer, how does it impact us directly in our own 
lives. I love what Jesus does. He says, put the denarius here. Whose inscription, whose likeness, whose image does this thing bear? And whosever image, whosever inscription, whosoever likeness this bears, then render to it, render it to, to whoever. This is Caesar's, give it to Caesar. But whatever is in the likeness of God, whatever is inscribed by God, whatever has the image of God, that must be rendered to God. And so when we read Genesis 126, that God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Since we are made in the likeness of God, and since we bear the image of God, we are therefore to offer ourselves uninhibited to God in everything. We should render to God what is rightly his, namely ourselves. Everything about who you are needs to be surrendered to God. Render to God what is rightfully his, which is your very self. All of your vacation plans, all of the way in which you spend your money, all of the time in which you use your time to do whatever it is that you do, your family life, your work life, everything must be rendered to God. There's nothing outside of God's purview. This serves as the rationality for discipleship. God wants it all. If you imagine yourself as a tree, as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, God doesn't want to lop off a branch here and a branch there. He wants the whole tree down. Roots and all. Because he wants to put to death your old life in order to give you the new life. Renewed in the image of Jesus. He wants the whole thing down. Ah. But this truth also serves as the foundation for all of our civic morality. The evils of racism, human trafficking, predatory lending, exploitation of the vulnerable, lovelessness, unjust housing, all of these things are condemnable because... They are a rejection or a diminishing of the truth that every human being is made in the image of God. And if every human being is made in the image of God, we cannot exploit these human beings who are made in the image of God. We cannot hate them. We cannot treat them with injustice. For they are made in the image of God. And God says, because my image is in them, you treat them the way I want you to treat them. How do we fight for justice? How do we fight for the vulnerable? Let's pray and ask God to help us because there's nothing exactly clear about how to go about doing it. But that we should do it, Crystal clear. But how we go about doing it, I don't know. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom and prudence and discernment. And let us be bold and courageous to walk obediently to whatever God has showed us. Don't you know that that is the motive of why we have the community outreach center in downtown Antioch? Golden Hills is not idle in this stuff. We're active. So if we're ever put in a predicament where we're told you need to choose between Christ or Caesar, choose Christ every time. Yeah, but what if I lose my job? Christ every time. Yeah, but what if my neighbors don't love me anymore if I speak? Christ every time. Acts 5.29, remember the apostles, they say, we must obey God rather than men. The same gospel that rescues you from the wrath of God will also deliver you from the fear of man. Do you think God is not a good father? Do you think God will not supply you with every one of your needs? Obey God. Choose Christ every time. So that every area of our lives will be submitted to Christ, including our, politi our political policies and strategies. Remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus had two disciples <laughs> A man named Simon, who's identified as the zealot. The zealot party 
were the traditional party that wanted to get Rome out of the land. And they actually caused some uproar. And there is one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, sympathetic to the cause to uproot the Romans. And perhaps next to him is another man named Matthew, the tax collector, the man who was once employed by the Roman government itself. Let me ask you this question. How do you think the discussions around the campfire were between Simon and Matthew? They must have been lively. But do you notice this, brothers and sisters? In Christ's company and in his presence, Simon and Matthew were brothers. And may it be true in our church that what unites us, the gospel and the person of Christ, we can have heated discussions about policy and strategies, but may those discussions never drive a wedge between our unity. For our fellowship should never be fragmented because of our political views. The gospel transcends those things. Christ transcends those things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the Lord Jesus, who when he returns will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body so that we will be with him in his kingdom where he will reign as king of kings and lord of lords forever and ever. One day these nations and political states will end, but Jesus' rule and reign last forever. So, Father, we need your wisdom. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your love. And the manner in which you love us and grace us and treat us mercifully, God, would we be bold and courageous to go and do likewise. For we are called to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so, Lord, would you in our church create such a unity that the watching world would see the unity in our church, even though we may have disagreements of our political views. And the unity we have, which is impenetrable, it's unbreakable, may that cause the watching world to say, something's different about that place. And it is different because you're here. And may the gospel go out in power. And may Christ's name be honored. In Jesus' name, amen.